The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us, for the way you provide for us in all of our various needs, the way you guide and direct our lives, the way you've provided everything for us, that no matter what situations we face, no matter how we mess things up in the process, you always meet us where we are and you always deal with us in grace. Father, now as we continue our study in Genesis, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, gain a greater appreciation for your work in history, and how you work behind the scenes to bring about your purposes and to glorify yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to thank everybody for your prayers. I just found out we apparently got gas this afternoon. So that means that's over with. Now we have to move. So somewhere between studying for Bible class, studying for other classes, somewhere along the way we'll pack up and move in the next four days. So who knows what will happen on Sunday morning. We'll just have to wait and see. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 25. One other note, Thelma just handed me a email that her friend Virginia called this evening that she's in remission from her... Uh, ovarian cancer, and so uh, that's something to give thanks for, that she's been on our prayer list. Also, if you had noticed it, we have a new stove in the kitchen, and we also have a new Yamaha keyboard down here in the front, not the one over against the wall, but the one over here, which someone gave to the church last week, so the Lord continues to provide and many different ways, and it's just fun to sit back and watch. Genesis. We've gone through Genesis. What I've tried to do is stop every now and then and either give a long review, which we had the last two classes. Now, last week we had off 
because I was up at Dallas at the pre-trib rapture study group meeting. But the two weeks before that, we had completed our study of Abraham and we did a two-week review, an overview of the life of Abraham. Now, this week, we come to a new section in Genesis 25, verse 19, that says, this is the genealogy of Yitzhak, of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. And this begins a new section, the section that will, in reference to the Hebrew word, the Toledot of Isaac. And this section extends from Genesis 25.19 to 35.29. So we have about uh, ten chapters or so to go through. And as has been my uh, practice in Genesis, what I want to do is a preview. Whenever you read a book, you should always preview the book. Any, any book that you read, whatever it might be, uh, takes, unless, of course, it's a murder mystery, then you don't want to read the last chapter. But you ought to take some time, just read the introduction, find out what the author says is the reason he's writing the book. And then read the first chapter, because usually in the first chapter he gives you an idea of where he's going, begins to build his case, and then read the last chapter. And the last chapter gives you his conclusions and tells you where he's gone. In, in the book, and then go back, read through the table of contents so you can see how he has structured his presentation, and then read the book. And in many cases, uh, if you, it depends on the book, and especially if you're a student, how detailed you need to be in reading the book. But I remember when I was uh, in the Ph.D. program at Dallas Seminary, and that's typical of um, most Ph.D. programs, I had to read 135 titles were on the reading list to cover in about two years to prepare for the oral exams. And many of those were multi-volume works. And that me and you had to be able to discuss everything that was in them. Well, not everything. And a lot of times all you had time to do was really just skim a book like that. So it's very important just to get that overview. And so I've been applying that principle to our progress through Genesis, so you have a good understanding of where we're going and why we're going and where the Holy Spirit is taking us in these in these lessons. Now, if we go back to our overview of Genesis itself, we know that Genesis is divided into basically two sections. The first section, you have four events. This gives us the primeval history of mankind. And the second section of Genesis revolves around four people, four personalities, and this gives us the patriarchal history of Israel. Four events, four people, the primeval history of man, the patriarchal history of of Israel. The four events are creation, the fall of man in sin, the judgment of the worldwide flood at the time of Noah, and the Tower of Babel, and the dispersion of the human race based on the uh, diversity of languages. Then the second part, you see that God is not going to work through the entire human race anymore, but he's going to focus now on calling out one individual and work through his descendants. And through those descendants, he's going to bless the rest of mankind. And so the rest of Genesis really slows down. If you remember, you read those first 11 chapters and you cover about 2,000 to 2,500 years of human history in a very cursory manner, and then all of a sudden you hit Abraham, and he just pulls it down into slow, and we slow down, and we look at four individuals, Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, 
and Joseph. And that gives you the structure of the book of Genesis. Understand what the dynamics are. Then to understand the structure of the book or how he's organized it, in the Hebrew he uses the word toledot, which is translated uh, in some versions genealogy and other versions this is the story of. Some versions it's translated this is the generations of. And it has the idea really of this is what happened to the descendants of. This is what happened to the uh, after God created the heavens and the earth. So the first division really of Genesis is a is a uh, a prologue, and that's the creation story from Genesis one one through Genesis one three. God creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and then we're told in two four. This is what happens to the heavens and the earth. After God created this perfect environment, this universe, and placed man on the earth, this is what happened. And that gives us the story of the uh, more detailed story of the creation of man and the woman and the, and the fall and the judgment and the uh, first episode with Cain and Abel. Then from 5.1 down to 6.8, we have what happened to the descendants of Adam. From 6.9... To 929, this is what happens to the descendants of Noah. The fourth Toledot is this is what happened to the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, where it looks at all three in a, in a sort of a total overview of the human race. Then you have the more detailed Toledot. This is what happened to the descendants of Shem. And of course, that culminates. And Abraham's grand, or Abraham's father, Terah, and then from 11:27 to 25:11, this is what happened to the descendants of Terah. Now, notice that whole section focuses on Abraham, but this is what happened to the descendants of Terah, his father. We'll see the same kind of thing, a little less so, as we get into our section. Now, the Seventh Toledot is this is what happened to Ishmael. That's the shortest one so far. Notice that it's only only uh, six verses from 12 to 18. Uh, Genesis 25, 12 to 18. It wraps up loose ends and tells us what happened to Ishmael's descendants because especially the Midianites are going to come back, show up again in Israel's history in the future, or in their uh, show up in their future as they were reading this. Then from Isaiah 25, actually it's 25.19, that's a typo, 25.19 to 35.29, we have this is what happened to the descendants of Isaac. Not a whole lot is really said about Isaac in this section. It really focuses more on his son Jacob. Then we have in 36.1 and 37.9, this is what happened to the descendants of Esau. Then from 37.2 to 50, verse 26, this is what happens to the descendants of Jacob. And that is the end, the last section in uh, the book. So we have two major sections that we're going to look at, the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Jacob. Under the descendants of Isaac, the focus is on Jacob. And the descendants of Jacob, the focus is on Joseph. So that gives you the gives you the overview of the book of Genesis based on its internal structure. And that's important to understand that the Bible's like any other piece of good literature. The writer unpacks for us his own outline, his own structure, the own, his the his own organization 
of his, his thinking, just as any good writer does. So these are the ten generations, the ten divisions of Genesis. Now let's go look in a little more detail at 2519 to 3529. What we have here is the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promised land, seed, and blessing. Isaac is the promised seed. That's how Isaac is primarily referenced when you come to the New Testament. Isaac seems to not have a, a big role in terms of being an example for spiritual things. He's primarily mentioned in the, in the New Testament only in relationship to being Abraham's son, the promised seed, uh, some historical references, a few things like that, as we'll see in a minute. But the blessing is passed on through Isaac. He is the transition man to Jacob. And what undergirds the, everything here is still this understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to see that they're in the land, but Jacob's going to leave. He's going to head back to Haran. He has really angered brother Esau. And Esau is just fit to be tied, ready to strangle him. And so Jacob, uh, or actually his mother Rebecca, decides that it's best for him just to get out of Dodge for a while. And so he gets Isaac's uh, blessing and he heads to Haran, the fa- traditional family home. And he's going to look for a wife. And he ends up being gone for 20 years, but he has to come back. It's the land that God promised, and so the descendants will be living in the land. The third aspect, the blessing aspect, is foundational to understanding everything that's going on here. It's the passing on of the blessing, and we have these interesting episodes. And frankly, I've, I've got questions, as many as you have. Uh, I was talking to somebody not too long ago that has just finished reading through this section and read all about Jacob and said, I don't like Jacob. Jacob's not a nice guy. He's just this swindler, conniving guy. And there's not a whole lot in that section that I find very uh, very, very uh, stimulating or very uh, positive to my Christian life. Well, that's why we have to understand some of these structural things because then it helps us to read read these things with a little more uh, intelligence. So the first thing, in terms of introduction, the first thing that we ought to ask ourselves is, well, how is Isaac used in the New Testament? Can we go to the New Testament like we did with Abraham and find mentions of Isaac there that gives us certain ideas as to how God the Holy Spirit is going to take these episodes and use them to communicate a doctrine to, uh, in, in the uh, church age? And really, we, we don't find a whole lot. Uh, Isaac's mentioned... The name Isaac, Yitzhak, is only mentioned 20 times in the New Testament. He's mentioned as being a, an ancestor of Jesus in Jesus' genealogy in both Matthew 1-2 and Luke 3-34. His name is in the formula of the three patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, several times. He's mentioned in relation to the history of Israel, uh, just as in passing and Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. He's mentioned as being the promised seed in Romans 9, 7, and 10, and Hebrews 11, 18, and Galatians 4, 28, but he's not really used as an example of anything. He's just, it's just a mention of the historical reality that he was the promised seed of Abraham. And in the same way, he's mentioned as the one whom Abraham offered 
on Mount Moriah in Hebrews 11:17, as well as James 2:21, and then his name's mentioned again in terms of being the one who blessed Jacob and Esau in Hebrews 11:20. So there's no place in the New Testament that goes to Isaac and says and uses anything in Isaac's life as an example for us for spiritual teaching. Now, that doesn't mean he isn't, but it's just as if Isaac just hangs there. And his importance is in terms of his being born as the promised seed, the one and only child, the only begotten child of Abraham, and his place as the one who is the father of Jacob, and his function is merely uh, transitional. There's a little bit more to it than that, but as we'll see, but that's, there's not a lot really said about Isaac. And then we come to Jacob. How is Jacob used in the New Testament? Jacob is the primary focus of this section in Genesis 25 to 35. So we ought to ask the question, how is Jacob used as a model for New Testament teaching? Well, Jacob, again, has a name that's mentioned 25 times in the New Testament. If you do a search in your your concordance, you'll see that Jacob, the name Jacob is mentioned uh, 27 or 28 times, but... Uh, Two or three of them do not refer to this Jacob. They refer to other Jacobs. Again, he's mentioned as an ancestor of Jesus in the genealogies. He's mentioned in the uh, formula, mentioned of the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's referred to in reference to his name for the nation because it is from Jacob that we get our name for the nation. He is uh, the house of Jacob. And then we'll find out as we go through this that at the end of his life he gets a new name from God, Israel, meaning uh, prince with God. So there's some sort of transition going on here. And what we find later on, it's not true every time, but frequently when the nation is in carnality, they're referred to as the house of Jacob. But when they're walking with the Lord, they're referred to as the house of Israel. So that gives you a little clue, because Jacob, for most of his life, is just this scheming, conniving. Uh, he's he's the he he he's almost like the caricature of the worst kind of salesperson you ever talked to. He's he's ready to do any kind of underhanded deal to get what he wants. He's a trickster. He's always trying to uh, be uh, one up on somebody, no matter what what kind of ethics are involved. So, uh, but his name is just used a couple of times in Scripture to refer to the the, uh, nation as the house of Jacob. There's historical references to Jacob in John 4, uh, Jacob's well, and that uh, Jacob is the ancestor of Israel. But the key doctrine that he's used to illustrate is Romans 9, uh, 9, 13, the doctrine of election. And that's that famous passage we'll have to deal with along the way that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, which comes out of uh, out of Malachi. So that's the major doctrine that Jacob uh, has a relationship to and when we come to the New Testament that he's an illustration of. So this gives us a little understanding that both of these men serve almost as transitions from Abraham to Joseph, both of whom have really strong... Uh, are, are, are both of whom are very strong examples of their relationship with the Lord. Now, 
what's the structure of this section? This is interesting. The writer often, the writers often structure what they're doing a certain way in order to bring out certain points, as I've indicated several times. And I know that's hard for some of you to sit and see the bottom three or four lines on the screen. We're, we'll get that fixed in the next week or two. But this gives us an outline, and it's in the form of a chiasm. And I've talked about a chiasm before, that it's a literary device that is used to structure a story so that there are certain parallel elements between the beginning part of the story and the ending part of a story. And it can be a story, it can be a passage, a verse can be constructed chiastically, and the writer uses that as a literary device to focus our attention on something. The word chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, or as we're taught to pronounce it, chi, but it was uh, older ways of pronouncing it was uh, with a long I, and that's like a letter X. And so if you impose a letter X over the structure where each point is indented a little bit, what it does is to drive our attention like an arrow to the center of the narrative. And the center focus of the narrative is on birth in uh, the ch- section from 2931 uh, through the end of chapter 30. It focuses on birth of children in the household of Jacob and then the birth of the herds, the expansion, his prosperity, which is the unfolding of God's promise of blessing. So what's the, the center point here focuses our attention on the ongoing fulfillment on God's part of the Abrahamic covenant. He's, he's going to provide descendants to Jacob so that the seed continues and he is going to bless him and prosper him. And when we get there, there's just some really interesting stuff in here. As I read through Jacob, sometimes I think, what in the world is going on here? And there's some questions I have that I haven't answered yet, so we'll, uh, I'll be uh, moving my way through those as we uh, conduct our study. It starts off with the struggle at birth, which is, foreshadows the struggle over their birthright, and ends with a blessing that's given at the end in chapter 35, and again another struggle. So this is, uh, everything is structured here, and we'll come back and we'll see this slide several more times as we go through our study, so don't try to... I'm not going to go through all the details right now, but this is just to show you where where the uh, writer's thinking is headed. Now, what are the key events? The key events, just to be able to think through in your own mind what these events are as you think about the life of, of uh, Jacob especially, but the descendants of, of Isaac. This, doing a preview like this is sort of like an, a, um, a familiarization tour. It's let's get an understanding of where we're going, who the main characters are, and what all the events are all about so that we have an idea of what uh, God is teaching us. The first major event is the pregnancy prophecy, and that's in chapter uh, 25, 19 and following. Things move very fast in our, our narrative. Isaac we're told in verse 20, he's 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. But for 20 years, we find out later, there's no pregnancy. She is barren. So once again, we have this theme of a barren woman. Sarah was barren, and now uh, Rebekah is barren. And we're reminded that she is the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, 
of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. And they're going to play, uh, Laban's going to play a major role when we get into the center of this, uh, of this story. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. He is praying diligently because she's barren and the Lord grants his request and she gets pregnant, but she gets a double blessing. She gets pregnant with twins. And they, during the pregnancy, there's a tremendous amount of activity between these these twins. And so she goes to inquire the Lord, why does it seem that there's so much physical activity here? And we discern that, learn from this, that the Lord is behind that in order to use it as an opportunity to foretell what the destinies of the descendants of these two individuals. And in verse 23 we're told, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. Now I want you to pay attention to that. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen in the next two or three chapters where this family is trying to manipulate the blessing of God and they're trying to do this and do that and everything. And they've ignored the fact that God has already established before the birth of these two sons that the older will serve the younger, that the line is going to go through Isaac and it's not going to go through Esau. But there's all this uh, manipulation because that's what happens when people are not walking with the Lord instead of trusting Him. They try to make everything happen rather than waiting on the Lord. They try to get everything to happen on their own terms. So the boys are born, and we have a major parental problem that is introduced in verse eight, uh, verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Isaac was a foodie. He loved that good food and the wild game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. There was a personality affinity between uh, Isaac and Esau and Rebekah and Jacob, and they had parental favoritism. And this parental favoritism is going to lead to a fragmentation of the family that just as Abraham's decision to go down to Egypt rather than trust God and stay in the land, and he makes what seems like an inconsequential decision to purchase this Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, and we're still struggling with the results of that, uh, their favoritism of Esau versus Jacob leads to a fragmentation in the family and we're still dealing with the results of that. And so it, I think the Lord puts this in here for us to understand the decisions we make in carnality, why the consequences may seem, or while, while the decision itself seems inconsequential, the long-term results can be quite consequential. The consequences can be devastating. Not that the not that our sins are visited upon our children or grandchildren, but certainly the consequences are put on their shoulders. They have to deal with, at times, the results of our bad decisions. And this can go on down through the generations. And this fits into the whole theme of the angelic conflict. Because what God is trying to demonstrate in the angelic conflict is that when the creature operates independently of the creature, it always leads to chaos and catastrophe. And no matter how small or inconsequential the decision may be or the sin may be, and it may not even seem like it's a moral issue, we're just acting independently of God, 
the long-term consequences are going to be devastating. And so we see the same thing happen here. They have favoritism. And then we have a little, what appears to be an anecdote introduced in verse 29 related to uh, the birthright. And this is a very famous story where Esau sells his birthright. Now, a birthright is his inheritance. And there's a play on words here that goes throughout this section between blessing, the Hebrew word for blessing, and the Hebrew word for birthright. The Hebrew word for blessing is the word beracha, and the Hebrew word for birthright is bekerah. And so there's this pun that's going on here between these two words in order to bring out the focal point of the text. Now, you lose that in the English, but you pick it up when you read it in the Hebrew. That's why uh, one of the fun things about reading Hebrew is that the Holy Spirit is very fond of these sorts of word plays in the original because they, they capture the reader's attention. And they didn't have boldface type or italics or underlined things like that. So through all these different literary devices from chiasm to puns and word plays, they would bring the reader's attention to the main points that they were trying to emphasize. Now this is a situation, verses 29 to 34, where the boys are a bit older. They're probably in their late teenage years. And Jacob is cooking a stew. It's lentil soup. It's not pottage. It's lentil soup. Red lentil soup. Remember, when Esau is born... He comes out first, and he's all covered over hairy and red. Now this is red lentil soup. So there's this this fun little pun that the uh, Holy Spirit's uh, using to weave these episodes together. He comes in from the field, and he's tired, and he's weary, and, and it shows that he's just he operates somewhat on emotion, and he lets his stomach be his God. The Apostle Paul uses that same kind of illustration in Philippians chapter 3, those that worship their appetites, worship their bellies. And that's what he's doing. He's more concerned about his hunger than he is his inheritance. And he treats his inheritance very lightly. And he just He's willing to sell it just to get his appetite satisfied. So he's a tremendous picture of the superficial, emotional uh, individual who just doesn't pay attention to his own actions or their consequences. And he sells his... Uh, birthright to Jacob. So now Jacob has a right to the inheritance. But notice his manipulation to get it. The writer isn't isn't uh, giving approval to what Jacob is doing here. God has already announced where the blessing is going to go and where the birthright is going to go. But what we see is this picture of Jacob now fulfilling his his name, Yaakov, meaning heel grabber, because when the twins came out, uh, Esau came out first, Isaac's coming out second, and it appears that his hand is grabbing at the heel of his brother. So he's called, uh, the name Yaakov is a term that sounds like he, like a conniver. Uh, it wouldn't mean that. Who's going to name their child conniver? Who's going to name their child swindler? Yeah. These are these are puns again. They like like the name Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. The the actual etymology doesn't mean that, but it sounded like the word that meant that. And that's how these names run in the Hebrew. They give them these names because they they there's it's sort of a mnemonic device, or it sounds like something something else. So Jacob it starts to show his his character here. Then we have a, another. Uh, 
major episode. We'll skip over 26 for now. Another next major episode that most people think of when they think of Jacob is when uh, Isaac is tricked into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. And the underlying emphasis here is that the hunter is trapped and tricked and falls into the trap set by his mother and his brother. The hunter is trapped by the trickster. And so Isaac, who is about 100 years old by the time we get to chapter 27, and he's, he's blind, which is uh, an indication of his uh, uh, perspicacity towards his own family as well. His eyes are so dim that he couldn't really determine who was in front of him, which son was there. And so he calls Esau to go out and hunt and come in and prepare a delectable meal for him because uh, we can see where uh, Esau got his uh, desire for food. He came through his father, and his father Isaac seems to be someone who really enjoys a well-prepared meal. So he calls his son in, and he says, I'm going to prepare a meal for me, and then I will bless you before I die. So you have these two things happening, the birthright, which is the inheritance, and then the father's blessing, which was sort of a prophecy or foreshadowing of their future destiny and prosperity. So the blessing is the issue in this story. But Rebecca finds out, and see, Isaac's out of it because he's ignoring God's prophecy. Rebecca's out of it because rather than trusting God, she's going to manipulate the situation. Nobody in this chapter comes off good. God isn't mentioned anywhere in the chapter. He's totally out out in the background somewhere, and it is a picture of how man tries to uh, solve his problems and achieve uh, his God's blessing on their own terms. And most of you are familiar with the story. Uh, Esau goes out hunting, but uh, Rebekah comes up with this scheme that Jacob go get a, a couple of kids out from the flocks and we'll slaughter them and we'll make a meal that your father likes and then we'll put the, the skin of the animal over you so that when he reaches out to see uh, if you're Esau, you'll feel hairy and you'll smell like the outdoors and, and he'll think that, that it's Esau in front of him rather than you. And so there's this underlying uh, theme of deception and conniving and it works. And Isaac blesses Esau and then Esau, I mean, Isaac blesses Jacob and then when Esau comes back, he realizes that the blessing's been stolen by his, by his brother. Now that's a concept that's totally foreign to us. I mean, we just we un, we scratch our heads when we read that and say, "How did this happen?" Well, this fit within the uh, patriarchal structure of the families that it was almost a legal institution. That when the when these decisions were made as to who got the blessing, it was a legal action and could not be reversed. So Esau has lost the uh, birthright. He gave up the birthright, and now he has lost. The blessing. So that's the second major thing that we, our third major thing that event that we see in the Toledot of Isaac. The fourth is Jacob's ladder. This is in chapter 28. After having deceived Esau, Esau is really angry, and he wants to kill his brother Jacob, according to 27:41. And so Rebecca says, "Well, it's time for Isaac to leave, and we're going to send him back to the to my family to Laban. Remember, Laban's not." Not much, not even better than Jacob. In fact, uh, it's a it's a real uh, 
It's a real contest to see who's going to come out as the more conniving, tricking, deceptive one, Laban or Jacob. So Isaac calls in Jacob and blesses him and sends him back to uh, Padan Aram. And as he's going out of town, he goes to Bethel and he has a, uh, uh, a dream there of, of a ladder going up into heaven. And this ladder goes up to heaven and the angels are coming down and going, going up and God reconfirms the covenant to him. So we have to look at what this is all about. What's the thing with the ladder and the angels and it's showing God's blessing on, on Isaac. And in 28, 13, and 14, the Lord stood above it and said to, to Jacob, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Sound familiar? It's the reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So there is a promise that no matter what it takes place in the coming years, God is not going to desert Jacob and God is going to bring him back to the land. And then he's out of the land for 20 years. And this is covered in chapters 29 to 31 where he consistently gets out-connived by Laban until he has to escape in the dead of night. And we have the episode where he is going to work for seven years for Rachel, beautiful daughter of Laban who he wants to marry, and that would be the dowry. So he's going to work for seven years. And at the end of seven years, he comes to the wedding and she's veiled. And so they get married. He goes back that night, and uh, uh, wedding night, and they, they don't have electricity. It's dark. He doesn't realize who he's got, and he gets tricked. And it's the older sister, Leah, who's not so attractive. And so he's now married to the older sister, and he comes back to Laban and says, Wait a minute. You tricked me on the deal. I'm supposed to get Rachel. And so Laban, always out for a good deal, says, Okay, you've got to work another seven years for the younger daughter. I had to marry the older one off first. That's the tradition. You should have known that. So you've got to, you can, if you want to marry Rachel, you've got to work another seven years. So he marries Rachel, and then they have. Uh, let me change something here. Then they have between uh, Leah and Rachel and their uh, their handmaidens. You get the twelve sons of Jacob, and the line. This is the line of the seed, starting with Abraham, Ishmael comes through Hagar. But Isaac is the line of the seed through Sarah. Isaac marries Rebekah. They have twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the younger that God has chosen. Through He has two wives, Leah and Rachel. Through Leah, he has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel is barren at this point. Do you notice the theme? Then he takes, because Rachel is barren, she says, take my handmaiden. Wait a minute, haven't we seen this already? This is the same thing that Sarah said to Abraham about Hagar. So Jacob then uh, has relations with Bilhah, and she has two children, Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah uh, is beginning to get a little jealous, so she says, well, you take my handmaiden Zilpah, 
And through Zilpah he has two more sons, Gad and Asher. Then Leah, his womb is opened again, and she has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulon. And then finally Rachel, God blesses Rachel, and she has two sons, Joseph and then Benjamin. And she'll die in childbirth when she gives birth to Benjamin. There's one daughter by the name of Dinah who we'll see along the way. So these are the key events. Now I wanted to, I keep trying to do this. I'm not hitting, there we go, there's the right button. I want to go to the map so you have a view of what we're talking about here. This area down here is the land of Canaan. And Isaac was living down south of Hebron and over in Gerar, which is in the land of the Philistines. But Isaac never left the land. That's important to note. Isaac, two things that are different from Abraham. He never leaves the land which indicates he's fully trusting God throughout his life. And second, he only has the one wife, Rebecca. He doesn't get involved in uh, polygamy, which is characteristic of the pagan. So, Isaac lives down here outside of Gerar in the south, and then when he sends Jacob back to the uh, in-laws at Haran, this is the area up to the north in what is modern Syria, near the border of Syria and modern Iraq, uh, near the Euphrates River. So he's there for 20 years, and then he's going to return down south, coming in this direction, until he enters into the, into the land from the east side of the Jordan. So that gives you the geographical orientation. Now let's go back to our earlier slide. Jacob is out-connived by Laban. I still want to talk about a few more things that happened there. He's out-connived by the wives, but God is blessing him. He blesses him with with, uh, numerous children, and he blesses him, and he becomes prosperous. Even Laban recognizes this, because when Jacob wants to leave, Laban says, don't leave. As long as you're here, God is blessing me. And, I, and my flocks and herds are, are more numerous, and I'm making more money, and I don't want you to leave. So he convinces him to stay, stay with him. And then we come into this very interesting uh, deal that occurs in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 30, where Jacob uh, makes a deal with Laban. Laban offers to uh, give him wages and Jacob turns that down, and then then Laban approaches him a second time. And this time, Jacob comes up with a deal. He's going to outfox Laban. He figures out that he's finally going to outconnive Laban. And he comes up with this deal where he's going to take the speckled sheep and the speckled goats and the dark goats or the dark sheep. And we'll get into it when we get there. And he's going to take them all out of the flock. So he's left with solid colored uh, goats and sheep. And Laban then, just to make sure that he doesn't get snookered in the deal, he's going to take uh, all these striped and spotted goats and sheep and he's going to take take them about uh, 30 or 40 miles away just to make sure there's no interbreeding between the two because the deal that Jacob makes is that he gets to keep all the goats and the sheep that that are striped or spotted and that'll be his herd. But he's not... You get into this thing, is is he trusting God or is he using pagan 
a magic to do it. And that's really what happens with this thing where he takes the, takes the sticks of, uh, of wood and he peels off the bark in strips so that the wood is striped. And he's going to lay these pieces of striped wood in the, in the uh, water trough. And the idea was that the sheep and the goats would come and while they were drinking water, they would see this striped object. And so then when they went back and uh, they mated, they would produce striped and spotted offspring. Now, does that work? No, it doesn't. That was just magic. But we get the divine interpretation later on in the next chapter where it's clear that God is the one who produced the striped and the spotted livestock over a very quick period of time, over a short period of time, so that his uh, Jacob started with almost nothing and his uh, flocks just multiplied very rapidly so that he becomes uh, very wealthy in terms of his livestock possessions. Then, then, of course, he still realizes he needs to get back to the land, so he's going to leave, but he knows that Laban just keeps trying to stop him, so they head out. And uh, he flees, they head out in the dark of night, and then finally Laban pursues them with his other sons, and they stop him. And we have this episode where uh, Rachel goes, goes back before they leave, and she st- steals the household idols, the teraphim. Now, what in the world is going on there? Why does she have the teraphim? And then when Laban finally catches him, she admits to some things that most women would never admit to. And uh, she's got him hidden under her saddlebags, and she's sitting on on her uh, camel. And she says, well, I just can't get off so you can search the cattle bags. It's the wrong time of the month. And uh, she gets away with it. What's going on there? Well, Laban, he's a pagan. He loves those household idols. That's something he values. And he's, he's such a cheapskate. He never uh, gave them anything or gave the daughters what they deserved. So she's just taking what is rightfully hers. But what we see through this whole thing is this scheming and this conniving and this backstabbing and nobody's trustworthy. And yet in, the, in and through all of this sinfulness and all this carnality, God is still true to his word. God is still faithful and God is going to bring about his desired ends despite human sin. And that's a tremendous lesson for us to learn that everything is based on grace Even when we screw up, God is still going to bring about his desired purposes and his desired uh, goal. Well, Laban chases him and makes peace with Jacob finally. And then Jacob has to go into the land, but he is scared to death because Esau, he thinks Esau is still uh, ready to kill him. So he goes back and we just see that Jacob doesn't seem to be the great picture of, uh, of bravery here because he's going to send all his flocks and herds in first and then he's going to send all the women and the children and he's going to come last. So if, if Esau is going to attack him with all of his men and, and his, uh, his army, then uh, Jacob's going to make sure that he can have plenty of room to turn around and run. In the process, he comes back to Bethel. And this is a the mirror in the chiasm, the mirror on the way out. He stops at Bethel. God appears to him. We have Jacob's ladder, and God promises to watch over and protect him, to give him, and that he is going to be the one to receive the blessing. And then when he comes back, he, he's scared to death, and he finally turns to God. And he realizes that if he's going to make it, if he's ever going to realize the blessing or any of this, then that it's got to come 
solely and only from God. And so we come to chapter 32, verse 9. And this is Jacob's prayer. And his motivation is given back in verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and sends them all out in front of him. And then he turns to God. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal with you. Now, this is a great example of a good prayer. Because what he's doing is he's very doctrinally goes back and he says, Look, this is what you said to me, God. In the same way we claim a promise, he's doing the same thing. He's going back to the covenant and he's saying, Okay, God, you promised these, these elements of the covenant. You said that uh, I would return to uh, my country, my family, and you would deal with me. He says, I am not worthy, in verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. He recognizes that all of the blessing that's come to him while he's been out of the land is from God. It didn't have anything to do with his conniving. It didn't have anything to do with all of his machinations in order to get this. It was God who provided everything for him. So we see that he finally becomes grace-oriented. He finally is humble. He finally gets with it spiritually. And he calls upon the Lord to deliver him from his brother Esau. And after this prayer, then that night, there is a man who turns out to the angel of the Lord who appears to him, and there's this wrestling match that takes place. And this wrestling match goes till the, till the dawn, and he finally prevails against the angel of the Lord. But in the process, the angel of the Lord is going to mark Jacob for the rest of his life by hitting him on the hip, knocking him out of joint, so that he is crippled for the rest of his life. So that everywhere he goes, he is reminded of that principle Paul talks about with the thorn. In, it's the same kind of thing with the thorn in the flesh, that my grace is sufficient for you. So uh, Jacob calls the place Penuel, it's Peniel in the King James, because he has seen God face to face and his life is preserved. And it's at this point that Jacob is given a new name because there's a character transformation finally. He's awakened spiritually. He's been out in the Thules as a, as a spiritual loser for most of his spiritual life and not trusting God, not relying upon Him, trying to do everything on his own. And finally he gets to this point and he says uh, that, that he has met God. He humbles himself before God and he gets a new name, Israel, which means uh, prince with God. Following this, he and Esau meet. And then there's one more episode in verse 34 that is uh, quite bizarre where Dinah, the daughter, uh, goes in, is living in the land and she is attracted to, or she attracts the attention of Hamor the Hivite, who's a prince of the country living in Shechem. And as a result of it, he gets a little overwhelmed by his sexual lust and rapes her. And so her brothers come along and they're going to seek revenge. And they do that by going in and telling everybody in the town, that all the men, that they need to get circumcised. They do it, and then while they're in pain... They attack them and kill all the men in the city. And it's just a picture of how pagan the sons have become. And it also continues the theme of the conflict that goes on between 
the seed of Abraham and the inhabitants of the land. And this is uh, brought out in uh, the next slide. Let me go forward one more slide. Should just... We have this ongoing theme of conflict throughout these stories. The overarching frame is that of Jacob and Esau. This conflict between Jacob and Esau begins at the very uh, inception back in chapter 25 and isn't resolved until you get down to chapter, uh, chapter 31. But inside of that conflict, you have another conflict going on, and that is a conflict between the descendants of Abraham and the pagan neighbors. I skipped over it in the summary, but back in chapter 26, Isaac is having trouble with the Philistine neighbors. He's gone to live in, in Gerar, and he's living there, and once again he acts like his, he's his father's son. He passes off his wife as his sister, and he's discovered. And then they begin to blame him for all their troubles, the uh, Philistines fill in the wells around Beersheba, which were part of that contract that Abraham had made with Abimelech, uh, the ruler of Gerar. And so they've broken the contract. Uh, Isaac goes out and he has to redig the wells and reestablish those. So there's always this conflict with the neighbors, pagan neighbors. And then you have an increased conflict with the pagan neighbors and the Hivites in chapter 32. All of this is to set the stage for why... God has to take the Jews out of the land to Egypt for a while. You ever wondered that? Why did God take them out of the land? Because they were they, the, the sons are complete failures spiritually, and they just want to completely intermarry with the Canaanites. Up to this point, the, the men have gone back to their cousins back in Haran in order to find wives. Now they, Dinah gets involved with a Hivite, uh, later on, the others all marry, uh, marry, intermarry with the Canaanites, and God has to take them to Egypt in order to protect them so that the nation can grow before they completely destroy themselves by assimilating with, with paganism. The next major conflict within the story is that between Jacob and Laban, and within the conflict between Jacob and Laban, you have the competition between Rachel and Leah. And the competition between Rachel and Leah has to do with giving birth, which takes us right back to that major theme that goes through the whole uh, last part of Genesis, which has to do with the seed and the, the fulfillment of the seed promise in the Abrahamic covenant. But what lies behind all of these conflicts is an even greater conflict, and that is the conflict between God and Jacob. Is Jacob going to submit his will to God's will and finally become oriented to grace. And so we do see a picture of Jacob after his encounter with God at Peniel. Uh, he is going to be oriented to God's grace, and we see a major change in his character. He's no longer the conniver swindler. He is now a man who is going to trust, uh, trust God. And that brings us down to chapter 35, where Jacob returns uh, to the land, uh, we're told about Rachel's death in chapter 30, 35, 16 to 22. And then there's a summation of who the 12 sons are. And then we're told that Jacob dies at the end 
uh, of his life at 180 years. So at the end of chapter 35, we wrap up the Toledot, or the, this is what happened to the descendants of Isaac. What are the lessons? What are the lessons? This, these are the doctrines that we're going to focus on in this section. First of all, blessing is based on grace. It's not based on what man does. It's based on the character of God. God's, it's based on God's authority and God's sovereignty. He's the one who determines who will bless and who he won't bless. He makes a choice between Esau and Jacob as to the line of the blessing. It's not about salvation. It's about his plan and purpose in history. Second, we learn that grace is not based on human merit. None of these folks are painted in a very pretty picture. None of them are worthy of God's grace. None of them are worthy of the tremendous blessing that God gives them. Third, we see the transformation of Jacob, the conniver, to Israel, the prince of God. The cunning conniver is transformed to a prince with God because he humbles himself under the authority of God. And then fourth, we see the increasing paganization of the descendants of Abraham. They look and act more and more like the Canaanites around them, which is why God is going to have to work in the latter part of the book to take them out of the land of Canaan, take them down to Egypt. The Egyptians hated the Semites. They were some of the most anti-Semitic people around. They were positive to Joseph because of what he did during the, to, to help them survive during the, fam, the 14 years of famine. But they hated the Jews, so they weren't going to intermarry with these Semites. They weren't going to have anything to do with them. They gave them their own area to live in up in Goshen, and they were isolated. There's no intermarriage with the Egyptians. There's no threat of intermarriage with the Egyptians. They're, they're able to be isolated completely uh, in their own culture. And so God uses that to protect the nation until he's ready to bring them out. And that takes us, of course, up to the beginning of Exodus. So that gives us our overview of the next ten chapters. And we'll come back next time and work our way through the birth of Esau and Jacob and the initial birthright and blessing questions. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things and to get this overview and to understand the, what they teach about your grace that each of us in carnality imitate the carnality of Jacob, but when we're in fellowship, we imitate Israel. And Father, we recognize that all that we are and all that we do that is positive is a result of your grace and all that you have provided for us. And Father, we pray that we might understand the lessons, the significance, the importance of humbling ourselves under your authority. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.